that I work is coming home at dinner time, about 5.15 in the evening, I pull into the garage, get out of my car and open the door to the house, and I'm hit with a smell of dinner. It just hits me in the face. It's wonderful. I love that time. Especially when there's something good. It doesn't even have to be anything good. It can be grilled cheeses. I don't care. But something hits me in the face. Just a smell of dinner. And most of the time, I confess to you, I'm not even hungry when I hit the door. But then all of a sudden, that smell of dinner hits me. And within seconds, my stomach starts growling and I'm famished. Like I'm going to dry up and blow away. When the college students are here throughout the year... Every month we have college lunch, and usually Jeff and Terry or somebody is in the kitchen cooking and preparing for college lunch to immediately follow after the service, and the smell of food just starts working its way into the sanctuary. And the first time I was here and smelled that, I was like, what is that? <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I want it. And I can, I can read the thoughts on everybody's mind as I look across the congregation. I don't know what he's saying, but he needs to hurry up because I'm getting hungry. Because the, the aroma of food has the ability to create this appetite within us. The next six sermons that I preach through Matthew will be taking Jesus' uh, words individually as we go through chapter 5. And that will bring us to the conclusion of chapter 5. And in every one of these, Jesus is going to begin with the statement, You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And in these passages, Jesus is preemptively answering the question for us, How then shall we live? What should we be as people? And what I think you will see by the time we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew chapter 7, is that the way that you live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven is providing an aroma of heaven to the world around you. That's the goal. That's the aim. Is to live our lives in such a way that an aroma of heaven is created for the people that are near you, that are watching you, that may even come into this sanctuary from time to time. With that being said, let's look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. You have heard it said, heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." 
Now, to remind you of where we are in the book of Matthew, remember, Jesus has begun his, uh, his, really his first sermon that we have recorded, typically referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7, or through chapter 7. And he came on the scenes in chapter 4, verse 17, and he told, he, or he said, when he came on the scenes, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he led off this whole thing, his whole ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus is bringing with him his kingdom of heaven. And the first thing that he does in the sermon is to define what is a citizen of this kingdom. We usually call that the Beatitudes. It's there in the first bit of Matthew chapter 5. It begins with blessed, 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 blessed. This is a character profile of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever wants to be a citizen of my kingdom, this is what that person looks like. Then he explains that this citizen is not someone that just hides in a closet... This citizen doesn't just live privately this way. No, no, no. This citizen is a light to the world. He is salt of the earth. And he beckons other people to come to Christ simply by the way he lives, but also by the words that he preaches. But see, a kingdom isn't just made up of people. It's also made up of laws. So it stands to reason that if Jesus is going to introduce us to this kingdom of heaven, that he would also let us look at what the laws of the kingdom of heaven look like and sound like. What is expected of his citizens? How then should we live? As I said a couple weeks ago, Jesus will be going through some of these Old Testament passages, some of these Old Testament laws, and he's demonstrating how they relate to the code of conduct of the heavenly citizen, how we're supposed to live. But what I think you'll see is that the Old Testament law clearly comes from the same source as this law of the kingdom of heaven. But in some ways, the Old Testament law is functioning like training wheels for the heavenly citizen. It's not until we see Jesus come onto the scene that we get the idea of what the path of holiness actually looks like. What the Lord is actually requiring of us as a standard of righteousness. With that being said, there are three observations that I want us to make as we go through this text. The first observation that I want us to make is that anger is for the citizen of hell. Anger is for the citizen of hell. Now, that's a really strong statement. I realize that. Because let's, let's be honest. Which of us, at one time or another, hasn't been guilty of anger? Anyone in this room that hasn't at one time been angry with somebody? Now, we won't do a survey around the room, but I think it's safe to say that there's no one in this room who hasn't ever at one point or another, maybe even every day, struggles with anger towards another person. So saying something like anger is for the citizen of hell is basically calling all of us hellbound. At the same time, I want to take seriously what Jesus is saying here 
in verses 21 and 22 in particular. And I think when we look at Jesus' statement, we'll see that it leaves us virtually no wiggle room whatsoever. He starts off in verse 21 as he will do in all the passages that follow it with simply calling out what is the standard teaching of the day. You have heard it that you've heard that it was said in the days of old. And in the days of old that he mentions there are no doubt the original audience that's listening to Moses give the 10 commandments that Jeremy read earlier from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Jesus quotes directly from these texts. He says, "You shall not murder." And then he gives the punishment that resulted from the murder, that the one that did will be liable to judgment. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if Jesus had just left it at that, if verse 21 was, was all we had and he just moved on to the next subject, everyone in this room would feel a whole lot better. Because we'd all think about it like, don't murder. Yep. Check. Good. I'm not going to murder. I'll just move on. No doubt everyone in his audience is thinking the exact same thing. Don't murder. I've never killed anyone. Good. I'm done. But then he moves further into verse 22. Because remember what he's demonstrating. He's telling you what the law of the kingdom of heaven actually looks like. The law of the kingdom of heaven points squarely at a man's chest and asks, but what is the motivation inside? What's going on inside your heart? And where does murder come from? And the answer is anger. Murder is coming forth from anger. Anger is the issue. Murder is the symptom. So Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. But look closely at what Jesus does here in verse 22 because it proves the point that there's literally no wiggle room for any of us in here. In verse 22, he gives three statements, and you'll see them there. The first one is everyone who is angry. You see that statement there in verse 22? Everyone who is angry. The second one is whoever insults. The third one, whoever says, you fool. Three statements that he makes there. The first one, everyone who is angry. Remember, this is in the context of murder in the previous verse. And so what I take that to mean is the kind of rage and anger necessary to lash out and murder your brother or your sister. It's the kind of anger. He's so everyone who is angry is liable to judgment. The point is, though, that it's intense and it's inward. But then the second statement lessens the severity to whoever insults. Not angry, just whoever insults. Now this isn't murderous rage, but this is a very shameful, pointed insult. Something like idiot or dummy. Now the word that he uses here is really rare. We don't we can only gather from the context what it really means. So it proves the point that this is something that's a very serious kind of insult. So serious that it's not frequently used anywhere else inside the Bible or outside in Greek literature. So the last one that he says is you fool. 
It takes down the severity even more to you fool. And that appears, that the word that he uses appears for fool appears more commonly throughout the New Testament. We'll see Jesus use this same word in Matthew. We'll see Paul use it in 1 Corinthians where he says the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So it would seem that this is such a common term that people are used to hearing. It lessens the severity even more to just a careless term of calling someone a fool. So it seems that Jesus is de-escalating the severity of the offense from anger to a, a really bad insult all the way down to just a common insult that everyone would hear. But what happens to the punishment? You see that? What happens to the punishment? The first punishment is that he'll be liable to judgment. This would be like a civil court that we know of, just going to a court with somebody. The second punishment, it says he's liable to the council, which is the Sanhedrin, which is the top council of the land. So think of just a, kind of a supreme court of your land that would determine your case. The last punishment is hell. The word he uses for hell is Gehenna. You need to know that because he's going to use it a billion times in this book. The word Gehenna, it comes from the uh, actual location of a ravine just south of Jerusalem called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And there, it was commonly known, you'll see it referred to in 2 Kings 23.10, it was the location where people would actually burn their children, sacrifice their children to the god Molech. The Jews later would use it as a, a, a trash heap. They would burn their trash in this valley. And so, in the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels, it becomes an image for the eternity of hell. That valley out there, the outer darkness, the valley where trash burns, that's the punishment. So Jesus' point becomes very stark when you look at what he's saying. The offense grows steadily less severe, but the punishment grows more severe until something like the, a common insult puts someone in the danger of eternal damnation. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he put so, so strict a, a, a punishment on something like this? Remember what he's talking about here. Remember the context of what he's dealing with. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven with him. And he's saying that citizens of his kingdom won't be governed by merely the Old Testament law. But instead, they'll be governed by a much more stringent law of the kingdom of heaven that looks squarely at a man's chest, at his heart, at the motivations behind his actions. In other words, Jesus' expectation of our conduct is the same now as it will be in heaven. Think about that for just a moment. The expectation Jesus is placing on his citizens that are Christians now is the same as it will be in the kingdom of heaven, as it will be in all eternity. In heaven there will be no anger. So now there should be no anger in your heart, since you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In heaven 
there will be no slanderous words. So now, there should be no slanderous words for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In heaven, there won't even be innocent name-calling. So now, don't let even the slightest angry word come off your tongue. This is only fitting for a citizen of hell. Second thing I want us to observe, as citizens of heaven, we must do whatever is necessary to resolve disputes. We must do whatever is necessary to resolve disputes. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this is the first of two examples that Jesus is going to give in regards to your anger. And both are examples of interpersonal anger. Anger inside our relationships with other people. And this first one that he points to here, it kind of imagines a worship service of sorts. And this person is at the altar, and he's there making a sacrifice, leaving his gift there for the Lord. But he realizes that there is something against his brother, that he's got some interpersonal conflict with another person. And what is Jesus' recommendation to this person? Go first and be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and offer your gift. Now this is significant when we pause to just think about a couple of things. First, this is God in the flesh that's saying this. This is Jesus the one to whom the gift at the altar is being given. Think about that for just a second. God in the flesh has come down to us and He's telling us about that gift that's being given to Him. Yeah, that's nice, but I don't want it. Not while there's conflict between you and someone else. Don't just pass over that thought. Really think about that for just a few seconds. We said a couple of weeks ago that the church exists to worship God and to bring others into that worship. That is the reason why we are here. Or another way of saying that is that we exist to make and mature disciples for the glory of God. That is the reason that the church exists. To make and mature disciples for the glory of God. It exists for no other purpose than to make and mature disciples for the glory of God. So the very reason that we exist is to worship or glory God. And here is God in the flesh coming down and saying, If you come to my altar, if you come to fulfill your purpose and offer to me a gift with something between you and another person, that isn't worship. That's ceremony. I want integrity, but that's vain religion. 
I want love that comes from a pure heart. That's worthless. The second thing to consider in that, and to just pause on, is where Jesus is likely standing when he says this to these people. He's probably in Galilee. The only altar that one would be able to go to to make this offering is a hundred miles away in Jerusalem. So when these Galileans are standing around hearing this, what they're obviously thinking about is the altar that is in Jerusalem. So one travels all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem and he's there offering his gift and he remembers this offense. And what does Jesus say? Travel 80 miles or 100 miles all the way back to settle the account and then come back to give your gift. So to put that in modern terms... If you are worshiping in your church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and there you remember that you have an offense against your brother who is in Beijing, China, leave immediately, book a flight, fly back to Beijing, China, settle the account, then fly all the way back to Tuscaloosa to continue your worship. To a Galilean who is used to traveling that kind of distance to go to the altar, this is how stark that image would come across. Thank the Lord for FaceTime, right? Step outside and place a FaceTime. It's all good. We have Wi-Fi. That's good. But I would challenge you to consider whether or not you think of interpersonal conflict this way. Whether or not you deal with interpersonal conflict this way. I don't think we do. I'd be willing to bet that more often than not, we convince ourselves that time will heal all wounds. That a little bit of distance, if I just let it die, it'll dry up and it'll blow away and everyone will forget. We'll let bygones be bygones. And you know what? Most of the time that's true. Most of the time you can just apply a little bit of silence and a little bit of distance and most of the time everyone will forget the issue and the animosity that you felt toward that individual or that that individual felt towards you will likely be gone, maybe even completely gone. No side will remember it. But I doubt that we ever consider how our interpersonal conflict actually affects our worship with the Lord. Not from our perspective, but from His. My bet is that this would be the last thing on our minds. Here I am in the middle of our worship service, singing my heart out. I even raise my hand once or twice, close my eyes, put my hand on my chest, let everybody know I'm really feeling it. Singing those songs as loud as I possibly can. I sit down, I listen to the word preached, maybe even taking the Lord's Supper. All the while, God is telling you, stop it. Leave the building now. Go to the one that either you've offended or has offended you and settle it. Make amends before you come to worship me. But Lord, surely, 
Surely you don't mean right now. Surely you don't mean as I sit here in the worship service. Surely you mean after the service ends, go out to eat with your family, maybe go take a nap, finish the nap that I started in the worship service, whatever. (laughs) Go take that nap, then wake up, and sometime this evening maybe give them a call, but don't get distracted with something else. Surely that's what you mean, right? No, that's absolutely not what I mean. I mean right now, right this very moment. Now, you hear me say this, and you, you probably even see Jesus saying this in the passage. All I'm trying to do is just make explicit what Jesus is actually saying here in this passage. You see Jesus actually saying that in the passage. It's very plainly right there in the text. And maybe you even thought of somebody in your mind that you have a problem with, you have an issue with. Maybe they've even come to mind that you need somebody you need to settle something with. If you resolve to wait until the next time your paths cross to settle it or put it off from day to day, that tells you everything about your concept of worship. It should tell you everything about how you think of a worship service like this. should tell you that your primary focus in worship is on what you receive rather than what you give. So you can come in here and your spirits can be lifted and you might be convicted You might walk out humming a song or two, something you can't get out of your head in Christ alone. Just got it stuck in there. You might have even learned something and you walk out feeling like, man, I've really done something here. I've learned something that I didn't know before. And so that's good. Or I've sung something that was, man, that was a really good song. I love that song. I sing it every time it's on the radio. But you see, this turns worship of the triune God into nothing more than a motivational conference. That's all it is. That's all it's become. You walk out feeling really good, but have you actually worshipped the Lord? Have you given anything? See, worship isn't that mere. Sure, you might have your spirits lifted. It certainly shouldn't be any less than that. And we might sing a song that you like, But that isn't our primary goal. Our primary goal is to give honor and praise and worth and adoration and thanksgiving to the only one in the universe that is worth our time and attention. And as Christians, we are uplifted when God is praised because we exist to worship Him and to bring others into that worship. This isn't an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's a slaughterhouse where you bring sacrifice and praise to the Lord. But the one thing, but the one that's being worshipped here is telling us in this text, you can't do that if the knife you brought to the slaughterhouse is still in your French chest. Go and take it out. Heal your friend's wound. Then come back and worship me. In that order. Citizens 
of heaven must do whatever is necessary to resolve disputes. Last, if we believe in God's imminent judgment, we must settle matters quickly. If we believe in God's judgment, we must settle matters quickly. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So in this last example, Jesus is depicting uh, the two people that have the problem going on their way to court. And he's telling them, settle the matter out of court. Settle it before you ever get to court. His point of the illustration is that this offense, if it can't be resolved out of court, well, then the person is just going to hand you over to the judge. The judge is going to hand you over to the guard. The guard is going to throw you away in prison. And you're not getting out of that prison until you have repaid all of the debt. But the question that we have to ask is, what is the point that Jesus is illustrating in this scene here? This little miniature parable. What is he, what's his point? What's the point that he's making? He's illustrating the final judgment with God. That's what he's illustrating here with this scene. And there are several reasons we know that. First, we know that because Luke 12, 58 and 59 has Jesus citing the exact same parable, miniature parable, And there, he places it in the context of God's judgment, and he's challenging the people that are listening to be ready for God's judgment. And this is how you're ready. You forgive. You make amends. So we know that that's what Jesus is illustrating here. But then another reason why we know it is because Jesus cites virtually the same point in a later passage in Matthew 18, 23 where he speaks of being thrown into debtor's prison because you didn't settle the account with your friend. You didn't forgive him as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. And he says this at the very end of that parable. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Brothers and sisters, the basic question that each one of us needs to ask ourselves is with the judgment of God being imminent, meaning that it could happen at any moment, what do we want to be found doing? If the judgment of God were to happen right now, what would we want to be found doing? What would we want to be found thinking What would we want to be found sitting in our hearts at this very moment? When the book of Matthew draws to a close, and Jesus begins to turn towards the cross and explain to his disciples that this is going to be his fate, they start to ask him questions. And we get down to Matthew 24 and 25, and they start to ask him questions like, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? They really want to know how all this is going to pan out. But particularly in regards to that question, what's going to be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? How will we know when all of this is over and we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God? How will we know that? Jesus answers that question by essentially saying, it could be at any moment. Like a thief in the night. You're not going to know it and I don't know it. It's going to be when you least expect it. But then he says this 
in Matthew 24, 43 and 44. He says this, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The imminence of Christ's return, meaning it could happen at any second, runs throughout the book of Matthew, throughout the Gospels, throughout the entire New Testament. We see this in chapter 5 in regards to anger. Come to terms quickly, lest you be thrown into prison. The point is that servants of the living God, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, should always be going about the work of the kingdom, and that means settling the disputes quickly. Not letting anger harbor in our hearts. But regardless of what job you do, I don't care what it is, you govern your life as a citizen of God's kingdom. But how does this apply specifically to anger? Brothers and sisters, anger is going to come to you. We're fallen people. We're all going to feel that feeling in the pit of our stomach of anger towards somebody, toward a brother or sister, or maybe just somebody else that we know. Jesus' very words in our passage assume that you had a falling out with somebody. And it's not that the anger coming to you is sin, it's the holding on to it. Anger is pictured as a hot potato. You get rid of it as quickly as you can because you don't want to be found with it in your hands on judgment day. How many of us We'll let these minor annoyances get the better of us. We just swallow it. We don't say anything about it. We just let it go. But we don't actually let it go. We put it in a little file. It's a case file. And if the case file gets big enough, I'm going to let you know about it. The annoyances build up and build up and build up and build up and finally you've had enough and the plastic case opens up and you launch the nuclear warhead. Bam! On somebody. Just vomit anger all over them. They may not have even been the one that you were building up a case file against, but they represent the one that you were building up a case file against. And you just let it go. And unleash everything that you've got on them. Call them various names, whatever. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize that this puts us squarely in the crosshairs of this passage. There is simply no room for this as citizens of God's kingdom. When we swallow these relatively minor things and just let them build up, It's apparent that we don't believe in Jesus' imminent return. Because we're okay with the hot potato. We're okay holding on to it, at least for a few more seconds, because, ah, what are the odds he comes back now? We think we have plenty of time. 
I think maybe I can hold on to this anger and not risk the awkward conversation because everything will be okay. But what we don't think is that this actually impacts our worship of God. Not simply from my perspective, I can still walk out those doors feeling uplifted. But from His. But you see, if we exist to worship God and to bring others into that worship, this impacts our very reason for existence. We have no reason to even be here. So then it puts us in a place where we're not ready. We're not ready for his return. Because we're still holding on to this. As the gospels would say, that's not being alert. That's falling asleep. You're making bed partners with your sin. And you're letting it lie with you. Jesus is clear, citizens of the kingdom of heaven that are living by the law of the kingdom of heaven dispense with anger quickly regardless of the offense. Now, I know what I would be thinking if I were you. Well, some offenses, have you, you know what this guy did to me? You know what this person did to me? Some of these offenses are grievous. Citizens of his kingdom know what it is to be forgiven much. You remember the terrible speed at which God's mercy came to you? Do you remember how quickly it came to you? Think about that for just a second. Do you remember that God the Father was himself the offended party? Do you remember that here we are as Creations from the dirt, made in His image, made to worship Him. And instead we spat in His face with our sin and said, no thanks, I'll go at it alone. Do you remember walking away from Him in our sin? And for that sin, we rightfully deserved the wrath of God rightfully deserve to be smacked from the face of the earth and put into eternal damnation immediately. But did he do that? He didn't. He stayed his hand of judgment and instead poured his wrath out on Jesus in our place, on his own son. You remember this story? Of course you do. It's the most important story that we can bring to mind in the midst of any and every circumstance. This is who I am and this is what God did for me. Think about how fast His mercy came 2,000 years before you were even thought of. His mercy came. This is what happens when we think about forgiveness to others. We put up the gospel message in front of us. And remember that your accuser was the God of all creation and had you dead to rights, but he forgave you. Jesus will tell us in the next chapter, 
so you also must forgive. But that goes for anyone in here within the sound of my voice. Perhaps you've never confessed Jesus as Lord. Perhaps you've come a lot. Perhaps you've left in high spirits. But you've never submitted your life to His Lordship completely. And if that's you, then the wrath of God remains on you. And you need to understand that. That Jesus came to save us from the wrath to come. As Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians. Run to God who is your accuser. And settle it now. Don't wait. His return is imminent. Could be at any moment. And when He comes, we will all stand before the throne of God to give an account for even every careless word. So do it now. Don't wait. Confess your sins to Him now and be spared of that judgment. But I don't want us to merely just think about this as a personal matter. That it's something between you and someone else. It's much greater than that. Brothers and sisters, if you're part of this body, each and every one of you carries with you a scent, an aroma. All of us are an individual spice that goes into the pot known as Emmanuel Baptist Church. Some of us are parsley and sage. Some of us cumin and curry. Some of us a junior high boy. No amount of Axe body spray can cover it up. (laughs) The anger that you hold on to doesn't just affect you. It affects every single person around you. And it contributes to the aroma of the church as a whole. And anger has a particular stench that smells like death warmed over. Now think about this for just a second. How can you worship with us when God is telling you, I don't want your worship while you're like this? How can you worship with us? How can we as a church fulfill our purpose of making and maturing disciples for the glory or the worship of God when we can't give God worship that He deserves because of ongoing strife between us and someone else? You can't actually function as a part of this body. Have you ever walked into a room where there's tension? You can feel it. It's palpable. And it's evidence that the church that's inside these walls doesn't believe in the judgment that they preach about. They don't believe in the heaven that they preach about. That's not who we want to be as a church body. But it's going to require every single one of us dealing with the individual strife between us and others, dealing with our anger 
swiftly so that the aroma that makes its way out of the doors of Emmanuel Baptist Church is the scent of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that our lives be an offering to you. Paul speaks of it in Romans 12. We pray for it now. That our lives be a pleasing aroma, an offering to you. Lord, we need conviction. We need your spirit to convict us of the interpersonal strife that we deal with all the time. that we may send it away from us as quickly as possible. Lord, I pray that we remember and think always about the terrible speed at which your mercy came to us. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive. A gift we did not deserve. And I pray for those in here who are dealing with real hurt, strong emotions of pain in their past. By your Spirit, Lord, give them the power to overcome it, to forgive, to make amends to deal with the residual anger that's climbing up in their heart right now. Lord, allow us as a church body to joyfully come together on Sunday morning in worship of you, the only thing worth our time and attention. In Jesus' name, amen.